Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, if we buckle down now and start implementing heavier rules for the pandemic, could we see potential for a holiday season, maybe a Christmas time, maybe getting together? We'll talk about it. Haldeman Mayor Ken Hewitt joins us to discuss a video that emerged of a confrontation between OPP and protesters near the Caledonia Land Reclamation Camp. And November 5th will be the day the Ontario government will file its next budget. With the pandemic, how bad a hit is it going to be? Well, we'll talk about that, too. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Let's talk about COVID-19 and the impact that it's having. As you know, yesterday uh, there was some pushback from some of the the mayors in the Halton region uh, because the rumor was that the Premier was about to add more sanctions there because of the spiking numbers that are going on. Some areas have already been designated as hotspots. Hamilton is not one of them. London is not one of them. Uh, But, uh, well, they say Halton's kind of on the cusp right now. What's going on here with the numbers? Uh, it is of concern, of course, because we're into the second wave of the pandemic right now, and we're just not sure how extreme it's going to be. But if we buckle down and start implementing heavier rules for the pandemic, could we see potential for the next holiday season? You remember the Prime Minister's uh, musings the other day when he said, you know, he was talking about let's not do anything crazy in Thanksgiving, and if we're lucky, we got a shot at Christmas. Do we still because of these numbers? Let's bring Dr. Isaac Bogosh into the conversation. Uh, Dr. Bogosh, of course, is a staff physician, uh, general internal medicine, infectious disease associate professor in the Department of Medicine at the University of Toronto. Doctor, great to have you back in the program. Hope you're doing well today. Oh, yeah, yourself as well. I hope you're having a good one. Also, great choice of music coming in. I remember I used to live in Boston, and that song was playing all the time. I love that song. You know the Dropkick Murphys then. I actually saw them live when I was Oh, yeah? crazy yeah it was a great concert yeah oh every time I, it, it, they played at sports stadiums every once in a while and i just yeah what a great tune anyway Bru- yeah not Bru- really related to what we're talking about but i i, I love that song it's it's a pick-me-up yeah bruins games and uh, red sox games oh, yeah. it's on there all the time as a matter of fact just you know, i can hear it walking down the street in boston anyway we digress i love it it's one of my favorite cities uh, uh, interesting to know that you were there but uh it's it's let's get back on because we could talk about that all day if we wanted to uh what do you you mentioned this. I know some of the comments you were talking with, with uh, some folks yesterday, Doctor, and you suggested, uh, forget about Halloween for a second. I think, well, we'll talk about that, but more importantly, it's holiday season because the spike that we've seen and the increase in the numbers we've seen, a lot of folks are saying, well, there's there's your Thanksgiving influence right there. Uh, a lot of folks didn't really pay much attention to uh, not uh, gathering in larger numbers, and we saw evidence of that, of course, with some of the numbers. Can we get our act together before Christmas, do you think? I honestly don't know. I mean, we have to have pretty open, honest, transparent discussions about this. Let's look at where we are in the hot spots, for example, of Ontario and Quebec. Let's look at the time, it uh, the, the time duration between now and Christmas and New Year's, and let's just think about logical and reasonable paths forward. I think we could probably get plat. We could probably plateau and maybe even start to see a reduction in cases. But, I mean, it's sort of, we're coming to the tail end of October here. So we've basically got about two months. Um, and will we have cases at a low enough level where they will say, hey, it's okay to get together and get your families together in indoor settings? I, uh, I got to tell you, I'm a little bit skeptical. I'm a little bit skeptical. If they do, it's in the hot spots. It'll pro- there will probably be some significant restrictions and rules or recommendations saying, you know, not more than blank number of people, physical distancing, masks. I think I just looking at the numbers now and looking at the trajectory we're headed in, I I don't know. I'm I'm a little skeptical that we'll be having a 
somewhat normal Christmas, New Year's holiday. Well, because we have been rolling some of this stuff back. Remember they said initially, well, they actually increased the number of people you could have in your bubble. Now they've, they've contracted that once again. So uh, we're not sure. We, we seem to be going in the wrong direction right now. It's going to take a huge attitudinal shift, I would think, for us to start getting on the track that you're suggesting. Yeah, absolutely. And again, like it's not all up to the individuals. I mean, I think there are certainly uh, structural issues that we can improve, right? There's different sectors of the economy that are at risk of having outbreaks that continue to have outbreaks. We've heard time and time again about, you know, a factory, a meatpacking plant, et cetera. So those, that, that's driving some of it. But of course, we know that there's well-known cases of, you know, people still having house parties, people still having weddings and private get-togethers and, and, and having super spreading events associated with that. I mean, that's, that's a mistake. Like, that's a total mistake. So they're, by, by and large, you know, I always think about this as there's individual responsibility, which is extremely important, and there's government and public health responsibility to create good policy for us as well. And then there's the responsibility of businesses and organizations. Like, if you have a roof, you got to make sure it's safe for everyone underneath it. It doesn't matter if they're an employee, a customer, a student. So there's a lot of shared responsibility here. You've always been rather pragmatic, Doctor, when we've talked about the, the role the government plays here. I mean, there are some, and we've heard from them, of course, that saying, look, at total shutdown. I'm sorry, we just got to lock everything down. It's the only way we're going to get this thing under control. And I, I know you're not that drastic about it. You understand yeah. that there has to be a balance in a situation like this. Yeah. Is, is government doing everything they can do, in, in light of the fact that certainly they have to concern themselves with the economies that are going to be affected by this and, and affected by this at the same time? But, you know, are, are we going down that road as far as we should be? Uh, you know what? It's hard to say. And I, I think the next week or two, I don't mean to punt the question, but it, it really I think we'll know more this week and next week. If we start to plateau and even start to come down, if there's indicators that things are getting under better control, then, then perhaps they don't need to do anything else. I think this would be this would be just fine. But if we still see growth of cases in Ontario, I would not be surprised at all if the senior public health leadership and political leadership decide to take more uh, heavy, uh, more of a heavy-handed approach. I think we should also rewind and look back. You know, if we think to what we were, where we were at in the summer, where we had very few new cases in Ontario, a more targeted, laser-focused approach is the right approach there. And you know, there probably could have been steps taken to keep those numbers lower. They wouldn't have prevented a, a rise in cases. It just would have kept numbers lower, that's for sure. But when you let the community, when, you, when there's just significant transmission in the community and your burden is so high, those surgical laser-focused options uh, aren't as effective. And you just, unfortunately, need more blunt instruments to, to get it under control. That's where you start to have to shut down various sectors of the economy, which is terrible. I mean, it's, it's obvious. We, we, know what it's, we know it's bad. We know it's bad for the economy. We know it's bad for mental health. We know it's, it's tough on people's wallets. Like, it's, 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 it's tough. It's a tough situation. But unfortunately, you're left with fewer options when you have cases so high. Well, you've touched on this a bit, and I know that uh, some of the critics of what the government's doing have also raised this, is that uh, there's the personal responsibility. You can talk about reduced hours for restaurants and bars and, and restrictions on, on crowds and things of this nature, but uh, what, what goes on behind closed doors in your own home is a factor here too, isn't it? Oh, I completely agree, and I think there's a, a lot that's going on that we just, you know, all the policy in the world, isn't going to touch it, right? Like if you can close down all the restaurants and bars and businesses in your city, but if people are still getting together for house party, that's going to be driving transmission in some settings. So, 
you know, public health certainly can do a lot. And they're, you know, quite frankly, these folks are working their butts off. I mean, they are, they're, uh, kudos to them. I think they're doing a, a, a very good job in, in many of the jurisdictions in Ontario, uh, including yours. But, uh, but, you know, obviously they can't do everything. And, and there, there truly is uh, individual responsibility here that is so important. We all have to play our part. We all have to play our part. The public health units uh, have to play their part. The government has to play their role. Businesses and organizations have to play their role. And, of course, individual citizens have to play their role. And if there's any breakdown anywhere in that system, we're going to see cases. We are. It's just – and, uh, you know, maybe we need to – I don't know. In all fairness, like a lot of this is driving behavioral change. And maybe there's a role for – better communication and communication and behavioral change experts like targeted ad campaigns in an age appropriate language appropriate culturally appropriate manner to be we have a big diverse country with uh, and, and you know the same messaging is not going to work on everybody so i think maybe some strategies like that might be very helpful as we enter the fall and winter I had a communication specialist on a couple of weeks ago talking about that very thing, and they said they should actually, you know, this is when the spike or the number that was increasing actually seemed to be in that lower demographic. And he said they're not using social media. They should be on Twitter, on Instagram. They should be. That's that's how that that demographic communicates. Don't even uh, and, get me started. Don't even well, get me started. I mean, we've been having this conversation in June, actually May. Yeah. Been having this conversation since May. And, and like, if your communication strategy is basically taking the equivalent of a pamphlet that you find at the, doc- at the doctor's office and putting it on TV and Facebook and Instagram, like, you probably can do better. Now, I'm not saying all social, you know, I, I don't want to cast a negative light on all of it. Like, you look at some really good communication strategies. Like, look at Ottawa Public Health. Holy moly. Their online presence is fantastic. Um, so, you know, I think some places are doing it really well, and there's certainly room for improvement in many other places. But it's, you're right, it's getting the word out and getting people to understand exactly what's happening. I wanted yeah. to ask you as well, because you've been awfully busy, as, as everyone has, uh, doing yeoman's work here, of course. At the same time, you're still a doctor, and there's work to be done there. Uh, how are the frontline workers, the nurses, the doctors, especially in the hospital uh, environment, handling this? I mean, I, I saw a rather troubling statistic earlier this week that said, I think it's one in five uh, new cases are healthcare workers. I mean, these are people that are exposed to it all the time. They're overworked for the, the longest time, of course, because of the way this yeah. has been going on. Uh, I, 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 what's 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 the the mindset of the people that are on the front lines? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to speak on behalf of everyone, but certainly in the bubble that I'm working, I'm at the Toronto General Hospital. We're married to the Toronto Western Hospital, so I spend mm-hmm. some time between those two sites. And, and, you know, there's been some pretty public uh, outbreaks as well. So, yeah, I think, you know, it's we're months and months into this. It's tough. It's tough. People are working like dogs. Uh, you know, it's, every day when you go to work, you're, you're putting on your PPE, you're, you're seeing patients, you're potentially you know, putting yourself at risk. Uh, it's, I wouldn't say it's, it's easy for everybody. That's, uh, but, uh, but at the end of the day, too, look what's happening, right? People, there's a job that needs to be done. People are rolling up their sleeves. They're stepping into the hospital, into the clinics. They're seeing patients. They're taking care of, uh, taking care of their patients. They're doing a good job. Uh, it's not easy, that's for sure, but, uh, but they're still doing it. So, you know, huge credit to, to all the frontline healthcare workers. I hope, I hope when this is over, I hope that there's just like, you remember when SARS was over? When SARS was over, they had this massive concert in Toronto, like this massive concert. I hope they do the same thing and just have this huge blowout when uh, when COVID starts to wind down and we don't have to do physical distancing or mask wearing or anything like that. I think that'd be a worthwhile endeavor just to have a big cathartic release at the end of this. 
That was Rolling Stones and ACDC. It was at the old Downsview Airport site. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly where it was. It was so many years ago. Seems like a thousand yeah. years ago. Yeah. Uh, just. Just as a follow-up to the hospital situation, though, we, we had a lot of concern, of course, back in the springtime during the first wave about the impact it was having on hospitals, not just new admissions, but, of course, as you know, you know, uh, surgeries were canceled for the longest time, and that, that impacted so many different people, too. Uh, with the second wave coming in and the concern about these increased numbers, is there any discussion at all about uh, about going back to that kind of a plan vis-a-vis uh, -vis the impact it's going to have on hospitals and the day-to-day -day operations? Yeah, that's a great point. Um, so, yes, and, and it was pretty impressive is during the first wave, most of the hospitals were really able to quickly, quickly reorganize and redeploy people for uh, tremendous surge capacity that, quite frankly, we didn't really need in much of Canada. They got pretty close in Montreal, but we didn't really need this massive surge capacity, right? We kicked everyone out of the hospital that didn't need to be in the hospital. People were you know, redeployed, you know, operating rooms that were, you know, were, could have been used as, as makeshift ICUs. Like there was an impressive amount of redeployment. But of course, this comes at a huge cost, right? This comes at a huge cost. People's elective surgeries were canceled. Many people weren't coming into hospital for things that they should have come into hospital for, like chest pain. So this results in in morbidity and even mortality. I mean, there's some data from uh, the UK and, and from other parts of Europe that show that the deaths related to, for example, things that are completely unrelated, cardiovascular related deaths, heart attacks and strokes uh, resulted because many people weren't coming into hospital because they were scared they were going to get COVID-19. So anyways, we do have tremendous surge capacity. It does come at a cost. There is a growing rate of hospitalizations from COVID-19 in the province. It's not tremendous, but it's real. It's there and it's growing. Hopefully we don't need to um, really use the surge capacity that we have available at our fingertips because it does come at a tremendous cost. We should be doing everything we can to avoid that. It's, it's more of a sound. I mean, do we, have we learned from phase one though? Because talking to the hospitals, administrations here in the Hamilton area, uh, Hamilton Health Sciences and St. Joe's, uh, they've got the plan. They said, you know, we've already worked it, so we know what was good and what was bad. So if we get to that point already, uh, we just pull that out of the top drawer and let's get working on it. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, yeah. Again, it, it, we we do that. We have the same thing here in Toronto. Like we can do it. Uh, we we for a while we didn't even have a COVID nineteen unit in our hospital. We just didn't have any inpatients with the virus. But of course, we we do now, and we have our dedicate. We we brushed that off and and. Uh, reinvigorated that and and now we have our COVID-19 ward with uh, you know a number of admitted patients and you know sadly we're getting more and more um, and of course that's that's also what's happening in many other parts of the country uh, many parts of the country and, and also throughout the province uh, and you know no one wants to get there but if push comes to shove and we have this you know a massive uh, influx of patients with COVID-19 we could take those same steps to accommodate those those patients but of course like i said it, it does come at a cost uh uh but uh so hopefully you know we can we can really control the spread in, in the community and and not have to come anywhere near that interestingly enough i saw the premier yesterday talking about uh, the impact it's having on the economy and he talked about actually we have more manufacturing jobs now in ontario than we did a year ago and most of them are producing ppe uh, which I guess is a, a rather interesting uh, side story to this whole thing. I know there was a real concern about the shortages for Phase 1, but we seem to be well-equipped to, to handle what's going to be happening in Phase 2, as far as PPE is concerned, anyway. Yeah, I get so happy hearing about that. Because, you know, walking in in uh, March, April, May, when you, 
you know, you're you're working on the COVID ward, and you you know you get your mask when you walk into the hospital. Like remember pre COVID nineteen, you just walked into mm-hmm. the uh, the little. Uh, there's always a little room that has all the equipment. There's just boxes and boxes of gloves. The best you just take what you need. Take what you need. You go see your patient. All is well. Then COVID hits, and of course there's you know disruptions and supply chains and all this stuff. And you know you walk into the hospital, they give you your your one mask and that's your mask and you know you could always ask for a new one if if it was you know dirty or soiled or fell on the floor for some reason uh it's really comforting to know that our ppe supply is not as precarious as it as it was before but in all fairness like until the dust settles until covid starts winding down i think many of us are still going to be walking on eggshells because like we've seen anything can happen it's great that we've learned our lesson it's great that we're making some homegrown PPE. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think this has been predictably unpredictable in some regards, not in all regards. And it certainly is, uh, it is comforting now, or more comforting to know that you know, we're not going to have to ration uh, PPE. Good news. But, you know, until this is done, I, I'm, I'm not going to get overconfident about anything. Doctor, when this is all over, you and I are going to sit down and have a nice cold Sam Adams beer and swap Boston stories. How's that? I would love that. I lived there for almost three years. It was like the greatest <laughs> three years of my life. As always, Doctor, thanks so much for the time. Stay well, and we'll talk again soon. Have a good one. Take care. Take care. Dr. Isaac Bogosh, of course, from the University of Toronto. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, the uh, confrontation continues in Caledonia, sadly. We've been trying to give you as many sides of this story in the last few days as we can. I'd love to be able to come on tomorrow or even later today and say it's over but, uh, well, it doesn't look like it's going to be. Uh, this is the scene, and this is basically what you hear if you go up near where the blockade is. Put the f***ing gun away! That was an incident that happened the other day, of course, between uh, some of the protesters and OPP after a confrontation that occurred, and it was a, a video that was released uh, actually by the OPP commissioner, which has caused a great deal of consternation among some of the people. Not sure if uh, the intent was to inflame things or to try to quell some of the disturbances. Uh, sadly, though, the, the people of Caledonia and uh, others are right in the middle of this once again. Uh, Ken Hewitt is the mayor of Haldeman. He joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to give us some perspective on this. Uh, Mr. Mayor, thanks so much for the time. Glad you could join us today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Bill. Uh, Deja vu all over again, Ken. I mean, I, you know, we talked about this the, the other day. We, it's still with the memories of Douglas Creek that burning in your mind, and now this particular situation. Uh, and uh, it's the same scenario, uh, the same concerns about treaties that they think were broken, and, and on and on it goes. Uh, you guys must feel like you're between a rock and a hard place here. I mean, you know, the governments, the federal and provincial governments, uh, really have sway over this, and, uh, and you guys are, are right there on the front lines. No, you're absolutely right. It, uh, you know, it's an issue, obviously, that exists with the federal government, and they've been uh, non-existent. Uh, I, I was on the phone last night with the provincial uh, representative of the ministry, uh, Greg Ripford, and uh, had a good conversation with him, and, and we both agree that we need to get uh, Carolyn Bennett and her team uh, engaged. 
Yeah, well, she's got her hands tied, I guess, with what's going over in the West Coast right now. But at the same time, I mean, this is a it's a big country, and the, these things flare up, and something has to be addressed here. Uh, because obviously the, the, the status quo is simply not going to be good enough. I mean, the pictures we've seen, Ken, over the last couple of days, angry residents, of course, angry protesters, uh, taunting each other, yelling at each other, the OPP caught in the middle uh, in a situation like this. Uh, it, somebody's got to come to the table and say, let's, let's try to work this thing out. But I don't hear anything from the, the, from the federal government at this particular stage, unless you have. No, I, I think what has to happen is, is the twofold. I mean, there has to be an indication from the federal government that there's a willingness to, to, to meet and, uh, and put some dialogue together with, uh, with leaders on Six Nations. And, of course, we know that that's going to be a challenge in itself. And then we, we, we have to deal with, uh, you know, the radical element that exists on the street. And, and you know, what's been reported uh, from, from, from them is, is completely false. And, and, and you know, I, I applaud, uh, you know, the commissioner for putting on video uh, and publishing uh, what happened, what really happened, because that, that's what is happening. And those people on the outside who continue to want to support this, uh, this kind of behavior is, is, is misunderstanding. Uh, this, this is not uh, First Nations people trying to, to push forward a claim. This is, this is a bunch of thugs that uh, have become enabled and empowered you know, because there's people out there that think it makes sense to support them. I don't want people to get the idea that there's a us versus them attitude in your community. Uh, you've told us in the past, long before this flared up again, uh, over 100 days ago now, uh, that you you have a good working relationship with the Six Nations, that you have ongoing dialogue, discussions about mm-hmm. things, and, and even this piece of controversial uh, land development uh, was well discussed from what I'm told anyway. I do, Bill. I've, I've had many conversations. In fact, I've had many people from Six Nations reach out, uh, you know, disgusted with what's being portrayed, uh, not supporting it, not happy. Uh, but they, you know, the interesting part is, is there's concern on Six Nations to become vocal in public. And, and as you know, the, the, uh, the fear of many uh, to, to want to state their opinion out there, uh, you know, keeps them from doing so. And, and, and that's partly what we're seeing is, is the louder voices that we're hearing and seeing on the streets and in the news and the media are not the voices that truly represent uh, the good hearts of Six Nations. But where do you go? I mean, hypothetically, though, Ken, if Carolyn Bennett, the minister in charge here, were to, to cite everybody and say, okay, we're going to have a meeting. Okay, it's going to be Thursday. Uh, and, and Mr. Mayor, I want you there, and we want the provincial representative there. Mr. Bickford can come. Uh, and we want representatives from, from Six Nations. Who sits at that table? I mean, that seems to be a contentious point. And I'm not trying to be flippant here. It's just that do you talk to the band council? Do you talk to uh, – there's two or three different governance groups uh, within Six Nations. Uh, sometimes with compl- conflicting points of view, it, it's, it, it's, it's got to be very difficult to try to get a consensus. So, uh, I, uh, certainly among themselves, uh, they have to find something. But at the same time, what happens if you have that, that situation where there's a fractious uh, point of view as to how they should proceed here? Well, that, that, that is the, the larger problem, Bill, that you mentioned, and, and getting the right people at the table. <clears throat> I think at this point the federal government needs to say there's a table there and, and it's up to you to determine who you want at the table. Currently, there isn't even that step. And I think we owe them, uh, from the perspective of, of, of Canada and federal government, in, in, in true good faith negotiations, we owe them the, that conversation. We owe them to be able to say, here's the table, we're prepared to meet, but you need to get the people you want at the table, and you need to get off the streets and off, 
off of public property. So that's, uh, and, and again, I, I want to reiterate, I was talking in the hypothetical because that has not happened yet, and there hasn't been a call from the federal government to actually have a sit-down on this. And uh, and again, this it's a problem that's been in, in existence for over 200 years, in, in their minds anyway, uh, about what's gone on here, and they see these things flare up. And I, I tried to get some clarity the other day about this. I had Aaron Detler on. I know you're familiar with Mr. Detler. He's a Haudenosaunee yeah. lawyer. Uh, and uh, he suggests that, uh, well, you didn't talk to everybody who should have talked to uh, before Mackenzie Meadows' uh, development went along, that there were other groups that you should have actually mentioned. But there is a, a protocol, I think, that you told us about uh, when these things come up and there may be some contentious. But, uh, you know, there are boxes you can check. Did we get an okay from here, from here? Uh, did you miss somebody? Did, did the developer miss somebody by not discussing this with everybody who, who's relative to this? Well, the, and, and you're right, Bill. I mean, we have a process that we, we advise uh, Six Nations Band Council uh, with planning applications and different uh, things that are happening that may affect uh, Six Nations. And it's incumbent upon them to to ensure that their territory has the, the right information and, and the ability to voice their opinions. Uh, and, and if there is a, a, a difference of opinion, then they should be passing that back on to us with for the most part, uh, you know, our planning applications get uh, very little or no comments uh, back from Six Nations. And, and at the same time, uh, in this particular case, uh, the developer actually sat down with Six Nations and, as you know, struck a deal that, uh, that you know, that awarded them some monies and, and land uh, out of respect for, for developing on land, which I might add is in the track. And part of the mis- mistaken uh, issue out there, Bill, is, you know, there's development happening from Waterloo to Brantford and, and everywhere in between in the same track. So people say, well, why is Haldeman County supporting this? Why is Haldeman County developing on this land? Well, I, I'd make the same argument that this is happening all through the track. And the only reason that, you know, we're being put to the forefront is because virtually because they can. And, and we've been able to demonstrate to the public that you know, this kind of behavior uh, seems to be acceptable or certainly works. And that's the wrong message. You know, these developments have been in the track. Uh, they've been owned by third party for many, many years. It's seeded land. And, and the claim that exists is not one of land. It's one of dollars. And, and that's what the federal government will be dealing with with respect to uh, a solution. And it's, it's up to Six Nations to put people in front of them that can come up with a, a, a way to get to that end. You see, and there's one of the points of conflict, though, because, you know, just as you've described it, though, saying this is all about the money, uh, some of the people that are right there at the barricades are saying, you know, we want the land, we want the But now I don't know who these people are, and I don't know if they speak for the, for the whole group or if it's just their individual opinion. But, you know, there has to be some clarity as to exactly what the stated goal here is. Uh, you know, they're, they're still maintaining, of course, that, you know, there was a violation of the agreement that was signed over 200 and odd years ago. Uh, others are simply saying, well, financial compensation is, is the best way to go in a situation like this. Uh, that's only going to happen if you get everybody across the table from each other and say, okay, where are we going with this? And we haven't, we haven't reached that yet. Well, and you're, and you're right. And, and, and I, I can appreciate they want the land. They're not asking or, or, or forcing development off of sites in other communities. And, and ultimately, if they want to own more land, then getting a bucket of dollars from the federal government will enable them to purchase land uh, in a way that they can increase their holdings. That, you know, where there's a willing buyer, willing seller, that, that would be the, the most uh, 
uh, you know, appropriate process to undertake virtual, you know, versus going in and taking land away from some farmer or some investor who has decided to put his, uh, his savings into, to an opportunity that, that exists for his family. You know, we, we, we can't start expropriating third party owned land because, you know, something happened 200 years ago that, uh, that would suggest otherwise. I'm trying to get an answer on this, and maybe you could shed some some light on this, Ken, because I tried to get it with some of our previous guests uh, who were talking about some supportive of what's going on up there, as, as I'm sure you've heard. Why this Why this development? Why Mackenzie Meadows? Uh, this is not the first uh, housing development that's been started in this area since Douglas Creek. There have been other ones. Uh, what What was the motivation for them to get involved in this particular project? Plain and simple, Bill, it's because they can. It's geographically situated next to the provincial-owned land of Douglas Creek Estates, which currently acts as a springboard for this type of activity and action to take place. It has become a home-free zone for criminal activity, and that's, that's why this is happening. It's not happening in Kitchener. It's not happening on the other side of the river. It's not happening anywhere else in the track because they can't. It just simply can't happen. And, and, and that's part of the conversation that I've had with the province is that we have to come up with a strategy to be able to put the right people in front to talk about what uses and opportunities exist on Douglas Creek Estates, along with opportunities for them to come to, to, to an end game with respect to a solution. But currently, Mackenzie Meadows is a, a 26-acre parcel of land that is a sacrificial land. And, and it's it's because it's geographic location. The solution, and I use that term loosely, uh, to Douglas Creek, as we all know, was the as you just alluded to, Ken. The, the province actually ended up buying the land, uh, so at least the developer got some of the money back in situations like that. Uh, and and the, the reason I hesitate to even use the word solution because it didn't really make the problem go away. Has it made it worse though? Well, it, it, it has. I mean, in 14 years, uh, what has happened with that piece of land? It's, it's an albatross. It's, it's, it's an eyesore uh, for both communities to stare at. It's a constant reminder of, of failed, uh, failed governance, failed, you know, failed attempts of uh, you know, both governments to, and, and, and people locally to be able to come to, to terms with you know, what to do, uh, what's the next steps. That's the conversations that should be occurring. You know, and this this piece of property is uh, you know down the street and 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 currently resembles the same, and uh, it's it's certainly something that uh, we don't want to see. We 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 want to see uh, you know meaningful dialogue with our with our friends on Six Nations to come to terms in an agreement that uh, that benefits them, and at the same time we want to see the opportunities uh, within Haldeman County and and, and, it, and its boundaries to to benefit the people of Haldeman County as well. Have you had discussions with the uh, the folks, the band council at Six Nations about this? I know that they have publicly uh, uh, condemned the violence and said this is not the way to solve anything, but uh, beyond that, has there been any discussion? Yeah, I mean, I've been in conversations with the chief uh, on a regular basis, and, and uh, you know, certainly he doesn't condone uh, the violence and what's been happening on the street, just the same as myself. Uh, he's, you know, he's, he's in a difficult position. He's... Uh, He's trying to, to work with those different factions and, and groups and, and bring them together. And, uh, and I don't envy him. It's a, it's, it's a tough position for him to be in. Uh, I'm here uh, as counsel. Uh, we are, you know, in a supportive role to, to be able to provide advice in any way to, to be able to work with them to ensure that, uh, you know, we can get to a peaceful resolution. 
Uh, what we've seen so far is, is, is not a pretty picture of confrontations. Uh, we, the incident, of course, on the video that we just played the audio from, of course, uh, with some people approaching the OPP cruiser and smashing it uh, with uh, lacrosse stick in one particular situation with rocks. Uh, the Douglas Creek thing got messy. As a matter of fact, you, there was an incident, as you recall, where one of the actually developers was badly injured uh, by an attack that occurred there. Uh, we don't want to get to that point. How can we avoid that kind of escalation in this particular incident? Well, I, again, I said earlier, I think it's two, twofold. I think, first of all, the federal and provincial government need to say publicly that uh, that we're, we're, there's a willingness and we're here to, 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 to want to meet and start dialogue. Secondly, I think, you know, those radicals that, uh, that are shown on, on the video, uh, those people are not, uh, you know, the leaders of Six Nations, the people that uh, that represent the good values of Six Nations, and those people need to be charged and need to be arrested as any other, uh, you know, citizen in this country that uh, that breaks the laws. I mean, you know, to, in this day and age, in this particular time we're in, to attack our first responders in such a way, in a violent way, it's, it's despicable. It's absolutely unheard of. And and anyone supporting that, you know, in my opinion, should be charged as well. Well, charges have been laid in, in some of these incidents over the last 100 days. As a matter of fact, we're told that actually one of the people in that video uh, has been identified and charged. So that, that seems to be taking its course. How are charged. the residents? Warrant. Warrants are issued. Yeah. Yeah. How are the residents uh, perceived? I, I mean, we've seen some of the people at the barricades. There's, because of the length of the time the Douglas Creek uh, event went on, Ken, a lot of people were very, very nervous. Some people tried to sell their houses and get out of there. Uh, you don't want to see that happen to a great community like Caledonia. How, what's, what's, the, what's the attitude? What's the feeling among the residents? Well, I, you know, I think, again, they feel abandoned, uh, you know, angry with, uh, with our governments and uh, angry with those uh, who have taken these, uh, you know, most radical actions with our streets <clears throat> and, uh, and, and want to see a resolve. I mean, they're tired. It's, you know, fed up. I, you know, people, people want to, to enjoy their, their backyards, enjoy their daily lives, go to work, uh, you know, come home, uh, enjoy their families, and not have to, you know, to, to wonder if the power is going to be on or off tonight. Is, uh, is there going to be, you know, another road that, uh, that they need to detour through? It's, people shouldn't have to live that way, and 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 it's just it's it's not acceptable. Well, as I said yesterday, the ball is in the court of the federal government right now, and and the and the province has a role to play here. When we talk about the crown, uh, that that's both senior levels of government, and they've they've got to be active about what's going on here. And it's not as if they're oblivious to it; they certainly know what's happening here, and it's a matter of their response to it. Uh, I just hope that that happens sooner than later, Ken, and we can get some sort of resolution to this uh, for the sake of everybody in this community, both sides. Yeah, no, I do too. And 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 as you say, the province needs to. To get behind it, they need to stand behind their land titles. I mean, if if if, if all of as I say, all these individuals who continue to say that we're on unceded land, I haven't seen yet one turn over their title or their deed. And and the province needs to stand behind the title system. And 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 everybody needs to appreciate that the title system is what governs us in terms of land ownership. In terms of settling claims, you know, those claims will get settled with with monetary, uh, you know, support or solutions. Well, sure. I, 
and and your point, I know we're just about out of time, but the, that, that's very germane to this discussion. Uh, if if the answer is no, that's this this is a legitimate deal. Say so, and don't be afraid that you're going to inflame the situation. State the facts and say, okay, now let's talk about how we're going to deal with that situation instead of simply pretending it doesn't exist because it does. Yeah. And as long as they're going to you know kick the can down the road like this, nothing's going to get resolved. Anyway, we'll stay in touch, uh, Ken. Uh, All the best to you. Stay healthy, and uh, we'll talk again soon. Well, thanks for having me, Bill. Take care. That's uh, Ken Hewitt, of course, the Mayor of Haldeman, uh, right in the middle of the uh, situation, of course, at the Mackenzie Meadows, the blockade that continues, and we'll keep an eye on that for you. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to talk about what's happening here in Ontario. Uh, with his daily briefing, his COVID briefing, really yesterday, Ontario Premier Doug Ford also announced that November the fifteenth, fifth rather, will be the day when Ontario uh, files its next economic statement uh, with budgets and everything else and deficits uh, that are going on these days. And uh, you know, we got to know where the money's going. I mean, that's obviously what the big fight's about federally. And uh, I'm sure we're going to have a rather heated discussion about it from a provincial standpoint as well. Joining us to talk about this is Richard Brennan, retired journalist uh, with the Toronto Star, who covered Queen's Park and Parliament Hill for many, many years. Uh, Badger, thanks so much for the time. Glad you could join us today. Thanks, Bill. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I understand you got your flu shot today. I did. Yeah, I got my flu shot, and my wife got her flu shot, so we're we're set to go, hopefully. <laughs> Following the protocol. Now, was it difficult? Because I've heard there were shortages, and sometimes they Well, don't, they... we had to go through our doctor. Okay. And, uh, yeah, we went to, we checked out a few places, and, uh, in fact, one said that they probably wouldn't be able to get to us till uh, maybe, you know, late October, early November. Wow. I, that's, that's amazing, you know. They, they, you'd think they'd have enough vaccines for it, but I guess there's such a run on it, which I, I guess is good. That means people well, are finally taking thing, them up yeah. on it. But I don't know why they didn't expect that, but anyway... Yeah, well, good for you. You're in line, and I'm making an appointment for later on this week, so hopefully we'll be in the same boat by then. So uh, here's here's the thing. I want to get your read on this. For all these years you've been covering Queen's Park, uh, Doug Ford gets elected, of course, a couple of years ago now, basically on an austerity budget. You know, we got to stop this spending, this crazy stuff. They're spending like drunken sailors. So he gets in, he cuts this, cuts this, but a boom, but a big COVID comes along. Uh, he's outspending Kathleen Wynne right now. And uh, has he got any choice but to continue to do that because of the, the pandemic? I know. I, I, Doug's he's doing the back, you know, the backstroke in red ink right now. I mean, there's <laughs> nothing he can do about it. Uh, that's just the way it is. I mean, you, this is this is not a time for austerity. I mean, would we like to, you know, see the government cut back in ordinary times? Absolutely. But not now. People people are in, in in hard straits at the moment, and they just can't afford a, a government that's going to be penny pinching. I mean, we've seen this, and I know they're doing it in Ottawa right now, and they're chiding the government for the money that they're spending. Uh, but had the roles been reversed, would they not be doing the same thing? I mean, this is you know the old cliche: desperate times call for desperate measures. I don't think anybody's happy about the deficit numbers that we're seeing, both provincially and federally, right now. But what other choice do they have? I mean, you know, these are these are support programs for people that are out of work or have you know can't afford to pay their rent, etc. I mean, and this is not just an Ontario and a Canadian problem. This is going on all over the place. Well, no, I mean, it's easy for opposition, and you know, that's their job is to, you know, uh, pull coals in the government. The point is that the, the governments, you know, the, uh, governments of all stripes right across the country don't have any choice. They have to they have to maintain the health and well-being of the people in their various provinces. That, that's it. You know, I mean, look at Stephen Harper. Even, you know, during the recession of 2008, he 
was forced to spend a lot of dough, which they did. It's, that's just the way it is. If anybody's got a different solution, I'd love to hear it. Well, I know. He probably had to get, get dragged kicking and screaming to that announcement with Dalton McGinney about bailing out the auto sector because, you know, he's always been railing against corporate donations and corporate bailouts and things like that. But it was the right thing to do at the time. And I think Ford has realized this, too. I mean, uh, I give the guy credit. I mean, he's not sticking to his ideology here. He's being a lot more pragmatic about this. Now we can argue about, you know, where the money's going and how effective it is. But at least he understands that uh, that he's got to do something drastic here. And uh, that's why it's going to be so interesting to see just what kind of numbers they come out with in, in, on the 5th of November. Uh, they don't really have too much choice except to spend, spend, spend. Um, so just a, a little thing here. I was uh, talking online with Rob Phillips, the finance minister this morning. Yeah. And we're, we're just chatting about, you know, what lies ahead. He, he said that the next phase of Ontario's action plan will make available every necessary revenue could continue to protect people's health during the second wave of COVID and beyond. He said it will, all, it will also expand the support our government has provided those still facing financial hardships due to the pandemic, including families, workers, vulnerable people, seniors, and employees. So that basically says it all in terms of that's where the money's going. That's what they have to do. They they know what the goal is, and, and the, the they're prepared to spend, I guess, to to meet that goal. Now, I don't know how specific he was in uh, in the, the the back and forth that you had with him, but does that mean the reinstitution of some of the assistance programs that, that have already come and gone? The sunset clause is already set on some of these. Yeah, he uh, didn't he didn't show his cards on that one. That probably something that you know that'll come out in the budget, I would think. Yeah, because I know that every time they talked about those sorts of things, they said, well, we're going to extend it for another 30 days. Uh, That was not to insinuate that they thought COVID was going to be over by then. There was going to be a reassessment. So if we're going to be into this for the long haul, and it kind of looks like we are, at least through the winter anyway, into the springtime, uh, you would think that some of those programs would have to be, you know, come back because, I mean, we're already hearing, uh, you know, from, from, concerned people and affected people about things like you know uh, you know the, the rent control thing i know that uh, they instituted the uh, uh the, the the policy back in the first wave i guess you know where you could not get booted out there was no evictions allowed uh that's come and gone and now there's a number of people that are facing that that right now so uh, they've got their work cut out for them really to try to 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 send these sorts of programs of, uh, that are going to be available uh, to everybody at one point or another because it's uh, sounds like it's going to get pretty ugly for a long time so there's two messages with this budget. It was, it's one that we're, we're here for you, and we'll do everything we can to make sure that you're looked after. And the secondary, it's it's a chance for Doug to kind of repair some of the wounds uh, that he's received just recently. I mean, his favor, as you know, has dropped. And yeah. so this, this budget will also, that's one of the aims of that, will be to uh, repair kind of the, you know, the, the problems he's had politically and say you know i'm here i am and i'm not such a bad guy after all so well, there's, there's really two th- two things going on here yeah i mean you and i had this discussion i think back around uh, the early part of the springtime you know but hey he's really turned out he's he's a, he's a empathetic he gets this he's he's doing what he can for the people uh, and there were a lot of compliments thrown around to, to premier ford at that time i've talked to some of those same people over the last couple of weeks since uh, the 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 the, the Hydro rates are expected to go up again in just a couple of weeks, and uh, they weren't so complimentary. Uh, so, you know, the, the whole thing here is that they're going to have to 
really tread on eggshells here to make sure that they do balance this. I, you're absolutely right. This is no time for austerity. Uh, you've got to look at everybody's bottom line right now and say, what can we do to help? And then I guess the uh, the attitude from what uh, Mr. Phillips was telling you, I guess, is that basically, you know what, we'll deal with all this later when this thing is over. But with, let's wait until it's over. Well, I mean, if you're a finance minister, you got to you you're, you know that you you have to look after people. But and you know, in the back of your mind, you're going, "Boy, what what are we facing here?" And the the Independent Finance Accountability Office is saying that the Ontario is facing a deficit of thirty-seven point two billion dollars, and wow. that's that's just staggering. I mean. Every every conservative, you know, you know, alive and and not, you know, are just going, you know, maybe the ones are rolling over in their graves are saying, "Are you kidding me? Thirty-seven point <laughs> two billion dollars." But that's that's just the way it is, and they're going to have to dig, you know, dig out a hole, dig themselves out of this hole at some point, and and boy, we're going to have to pay for it. All of us at that, we're going to have to really tighten our belts up when that when this uh, uh, pandemic is over, if and when. Yeah. It's going to be it's going to be interesting. Well, we'll see how Mr. Phillips words it, I guess, on the fifth, and uh, we'll go from there. Uh, Richard, as always, thanks so much for the time today. Stay well, and we'll talk again soon. Okay, Bill, look after yourself. You too, Richard Brennan, of course, uh, covered uh, Queens Park for so many years uh, for the Toronto Star. Uh, November the fifth, the, the economic uh, statement, and uh, as I say, uh, Richard already had some discussions with the minister about that, so we got an inkling of what's going to be happening. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from nine to noon on nine hundred CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.